0: Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter twenty-four, we're going to um, continue our our study through this just amazing chapter. And uh, you know, we're, we're still looking at and learning about Jesus's teaching on the Mount of Olives, what we uh, commonly refer to as the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is there on the Mount of Olives, and and he has given this, this teaching. He's, uh, in particular, he's specifically answering three questions that are asked by the disciples. These three questions were given uh, back in verse 3 of chapter 24. Where it says, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So these disciples are asking the lord right tell us when these things will be tell us what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age and so last week with uh pastor dean uh, led us through the first section of this chapter dealing with the the seven years of the great tribulation and and the signs and and the things that would would um would come before that. And so this morning, we're going to be picking up our study in verse 27, and we're going to read down to uh, the end of the chapter this morning, uh, Lord willing. So if you have your Bibles, uh, Matthew 24, verse 27, and uh, the words will be up on the screen if you need them. And it says, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. And immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power And great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now, learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also. When you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were so also, uh, will the coming of the Son of Man be. For for as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at the hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over, the household, over his household to give them food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you, that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and to drink with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him. And at an hour, when he is not aware of, and will cut him into, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Lord, would you honor the reading of your word this morning? Would you go before us, Lord, as we enter in this study? Would you speak to us? Would you minister to us? God, have your way. Pour out your spirit in this place. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, Amen. So as we consider this passage, even just a, even just a cursory reading of, of verses 27 through 51, just a cursory reading tells us what this is talking about, tells us what this section is all about. It is all about the coming of the Son of Man. It's all about the coming of Jesus. I mean, look with me in verse 27. It says, the coming of the Son of Man. In verse 30, the Son of Man will appear. Further down in verse 30, the Son of Man is coming. Verse 37, the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 39, the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 42, your Lord is coming. Verse 44, the Son of Man is coming. get the picture? This passage is all about the Son of Man coming. It is all about Jesus' return. He is coming back. It's all about the coming of the Son of Man. I titled this message, The King is Coming. Because he is. It's a promise of scripture. In fact, this phrase, the Son of Man, is a messianic title that was first given to us back in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And it's one of the most common titles that the Lord uses of himself that Jesus himself calls himself the Son of Man. And here, several times throughout this passage, talks about his coming, that he is coming. You know, biblical prophecy provides some of the greatest encouragement and some of the greatest hope available to us today. Just as the Old Testament is saturated with prophecies concerning Jesus' first advent, for his, his first Coming, so both testaments are filled with references to his second coming, the second coming of Christ. One scholar has estimated that there are 1,845 references to Jesus' second coming in the Old Testament alone, where 17 books give it prominence, and in the 260 chapters of the New Testament, there are 318 references to his second coming an amazing one out of every 30 verses. Think about that. In In the New Testament, one out of every 30 verses references his second coming, references the fact that he is coming back. 23 of the 27 New Testament books refer to this great event. For every prophecy in the Bible concerning his first advent, there are eight more which look forward to his second. He is coming back. Amen, right? <laughs> it's a good spot for an amen right there. He is coming back. And so as we, as we jump in this morning, as we jump into our text, if you're a, a note taker this morning, there's going to be six things that we want to consider. Six things to consider this morning about the coming of the Son of Man. Six things that, com- that uh, pertain to, the second coming of Jesus. The first is the prophecies regarding his coming. The prophecies regarding his coming. Look back at verse 27 through 31 with me. In verse 27, it says, For as the lightning comes from the east and it flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Right? As the lightning flashes from the east and to the west, so too will will the coming of the Son of Man be. So if you will, just flip over with me to Revelation chapter 1. And, and as we consider this morning, just the, 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 the coming of, <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus. This is obviously uh, describing the second coming of Jesus, which occurs at the end of the seven years of tribulation, right? The... the um, the previous verses, as we lead into this passage, the previous verses have been talking about the false teachers, the false Christs, the false prophets that will come on the scene, that will come to deceive. But when the true Christ, right, when Jesus comes back, right, when the true Messiah comes, it will be evident and it will be obvious. In other words, no one is going to miss it. Right now, people might be coming on the scene and, you know, people might argue that, oh, Jesus came at such and such a time. You know, his second coming happened then. You know, people today might even be claiming to be the Messiah, to be the Christ. But no, scripture is clear. When he comes back for his second coming, the entire world will know of it. It'll be clear, evident, and obvious that he has come back. So in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, uh, it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, Amen. Every eye will see him. Right? This isn't some, something that he, he comes on the scene in secret and no one knew. That was his first advent, that was his first coming. When it seemed somewhat veiled and uncertain, but his second coming everyone will know. Right? It says every eye will see him. You know, and it's interesting that we live in a day and age today when that is possible. Right? Something can happen in the world and everybody can see it and view it. You know, but as we get into this passage, we're gonna see it's more than just some Facebook live video or someone live streaming on Instagram or whatever it is. No. No, there's going to be signs in the heavens that Jesus is coming back. You know, if we were to keep your finger in Revelation, we're going to go back there. But coming back to our text in verse 28 of Matthew 24. It says, wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Right, so something something happens when when Jesus comes back, right? When in Jesus' return, something happens and, and there is a clear and evident picture going on. You know, and it says there that that for wherever the carcass is, the eagles will be gathered together, right? So the carcass is, right, obviously referring to something that is dead, something that is passed on, right? Dead flesh and the eagle, which could probably be better translated vulture, Right? He's talking about a bird of prey that feeds on flesh. In particular, feeds on dead flesh, right? Feeds on carcasses. You know, there in, in the Greek, it could probably be better translated a, a vulture, or some bird of, of prey that, that feeds on dead carcasses. So, so keeping with what's going on, in Revelation chapter 19, we have this thing that's called the Supper of God. The Supper of God. Um, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 17, it's, it's considered the supper of the great God. And this, this is not to be dis- confused with the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is a different event, right? The marriage supper of the Lamb is something that we as believers get to partake with Jesus. But no, the, the, the supper of the great God is something different. So if you're, if you're still there in Revelation, turn over to chapter 19, and if we pick up in verse 17, it says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying, listen to this, saying, to all the birds, right, to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image." These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Right, so something's going to happen, right? At the end of the Great Tribulation, that the Antichrist, the false prophet, they are going to gather the armies of the world, right? Against the people of God, against God's elect, against the Jewish nation, right? And they're going to try and make war, and Jesus is going to come back, right? He's going to land on the Mount of Olives. It's going to split in two, and he is going to go to war with the armies of the world. Right? So at the end of the Great Tribulation, Jesus comes back. He's riding on this horse, right? It says that that on his thigh is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and he battles the armies of the earth in what we call the Battle of Armageddon. And I'm going to have you pull up that slide. Just a, a picture for you guys. Um, this Battle of Armageddon, it's going to span some 200 miles. Right? It's going to start there in the bottom of the screen where it says, it's kind of hard to see. I circled it. It says Basra. Right? That's Basra or what we might call the rock city of Petra. And that's where, that's where the Jews are going to go in hiding from the Antichrist. Right. And Jesus is going to show up, and he's going to make war, and it's going to start there in Basra. Isaiah 63 talks about this, and they're going to go up, and he's going to go up through the Kidron Valley. So this little red line with the arrow that points kind of there in the center of the screen, that's the Kidron Valley, or what's also known as the Valley of Jehoshaphat, and it's going to continue up to the Valley of Megiddo, which is there on the top of the screen. So there on the side there, I kind of put it, um, one of the prophecies say, says it's going to be 1,600 furlongs, which comes out to about 184 miles, 200 miles, somewhere in there. So it's going to start from Basra. It's going to go up through um, the Kidron Valley up to the Valley of Megiddo. Um, Isaiah 63, Zechariah 14, Revelation 16 all talk about this. So um, thank you for that. Um, so just kind of a picture of, of, of what's going on and what Jesus is, is going to be doing when he comes back. Is everybody okay? Tracking with me so far? Well, if you think that's bad, it, it, it gets worse. Um, a <laughs> little encouragement for you this morning. Um, picking up in verse 19, it says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So the sun's not going to give its light, right? The, uh, the, the sun's going to darken. The moon's not going to give its light anymore. It says the, the stars are falling from heaven and the powers of heaven are shaking. I mean, this is almost word for word what it says in Joel chapter 2, verses 30 and 31. It's also very similar to what Jesus describes in the sixth seal being opened up in Revelation 6, 12 through 17. And the point here is that th- during this time, when Jesus is coming back for his second coming, right, this is not something that is missed or overlooked by anyone. Everyone will see it. The Lord's second coming, there is going to be great cataclysmic occurrences happening in the heavens. And every eye will see In Philippians, it says, Every eye will see and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And in verse 30, he says, When the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. We just read this in Revelation 1-7. The whole earth is mourning, and the Son of Man is coming on on the clouds. Zechariah twelve ten says, and I will pour on the house of David and on the house, I'm sorry, and on the the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me whom they pierce. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grief for him as one that grieves for a firstborn. So we have these Old Testament prophecies that point forward to his second coming. So the Old Testament prophesies of his second coming and the New Testament and is predicted, sorry, in the New Testament. right? The, the Bible is riddled with the second coming of Christ. And in verse 31, it says, He will send his angels... With a great sound of a trumpet, he will gather together his elect from the four winds and from the end of heaven to the other. So the angels, right? These things are happening. The angels are getting involved. They're collecting, right, God's elect from the four winds, or we might say from the four corners of the earth. You know, and this is where, and I got I to tell you, I, I labored over this passage this past week. And, I, and I've gone back and forth and, and uh, you know, it didn't, seem to, it didn't seem to matter who I read. Someone had a slightly different take on, on what's going on here. And, and it gets a little, I guess, controversial, I suppose. You know, some scholars and teachers can, can be divided as to, to what's going on. But stay with me because I hope to make it as clear as mud. Um, so some believe that in verse 31, he's referring to the rapture of the church. Right and it's argued that that these these angels that are that are gathering God's elect from the four corners of the earth, from the four corners of the earth they're gathering God's church for the rapture. And 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 when you read that verse and I can understand how you get there. But based on the context of what Jesus has been talking about I'm not sure that's what's going on. Based on the context, I think he's still talking about his second coming, which occurs after the Great Tribulation. And I I believe what's being referred to here is what the Old Testament prophesies about, gathering God's elect from the four corners of the earth to go into the millennial kingdom with Christ. And so you have to ask the question, who, who are the elect? Who are these people that are being gathered? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked. The elect in Scripture generally point to two groups of people. The elect in Scripture generally speak about two groups of people. The first is Israel. Israel are God's people. They are God's elect. Read Isaiah 45. Read um, you know, Isaiah 45 says, For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect. I have even called you by your name and have named you, though you have not known me. You know, there are many other places throughout the Old Testament where Israel are called God's elect, God's people. You know, we also have some, some New Testament verses, too, that also suggest that the elect are believers, Right, Colossians chapter three. Um, for you, uh, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Right. So we've been grafted in. We've been included. In the seed of Abraham. And what is the seed of Abraham? God's people, the elect. Uh, Paul also talks about it in in Galatians chapter 3 as well. Um, And so we have the elect of God, right? Being gathered by these these angels from the four corners of of the earth, so before the tribulation, right before the seven years of tribulation, the church we believe are raptured, right? The church is raptured, and those who are dead in Christ will be raised to meet Jesus in the clouds, right? So, First um, Thessalonians four seventeen, right? Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 51 and 52, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So we have these two events that take place, these two gatherings, right? That, that in the one sense we have the church being gathered and being raptured, right, meeting Jesus. In the clouds. But we also have the elect after the tribulation, right? And the elect after the tribulation, which I also believe to be obviously God's Jewish people, right? That the nation of Israel and those that get saved during the tribulation period are then gathered together to be ushered into the millennial kingdom with Jesus. And so we have these these prophecies regarding the coming of the Son of Man. But we also have the parable, right? The parable about his coming. And so this thought kind of continues as Jesus jumps into, in verse 32 and 33, this parable of the fig tree. It says, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. So the fig tree, right? When you see the fig tree, and the thing about the fig tree is when the fig tree starts producing leaves, at the same time, it starts producing its fruit. So the idea is when you see a fig tree with leaves on it, the fruit's there, right? And, and if you remember the, the story when Jesus cursed the fig tree, right? Because he went to the fig tree and he saw the leaves on the fig tree, so he expected there to be fruit on it, but there was no fruit to give him nourishment. In the same way, he's, he's using that kind of same analogy. When you see the leaves on the fig tree, you know the fruit is on the fig tree. You know, and he's kind of um, talking to us about basic gardening, right? When you start to see the leaves come out, when you start to see the plant bloom, you see the flower, right? You know the time is almost ready, right? The harvest is almost there. Spring has sprung which means summer is right around the corner. He's basically saying, hey, you you guys can read the signs of the times, right? You guys can look at the plant and say, hey, the leaves are growing. The flower's there, right? Spring is here, which means summer is at the door. So when we see this fig tree blooming, it means that the time has come, right? It means that his second coming is upon us. You know, and he says this interesting thing there in verse 34, where he says, Assuredly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. So, the generation that sees the fig tree, right? When you see these things, this generation won't pass away. And there's been a lot of debate as to what this means. In particular, there's been a lot of debate as to who is this generation? What's the generation that's going to see these things? Because right? he says the generation that sees these things won't pass away, right? There won't be another generation. So there's been a whole lot of debate you know, about what this generation means. Some say that a generation is 40 years. Others say that a generation is 70 years. Some even go as far as to say a generation is 100 years and so they, you start, right? You can see where this goes, right? You can put the timetable on it. Well, if a generation is 40 years and I saw this thing, then 40 years after this thing, that's when it happens, right? Because we're trying to read the signs, right? We're, we're looking for the fig tree to bloom. And a lot of people have said that the fig tree, when it, when it blooms, the blooming fig tree, the fig tree with leaves on it, was a nation of Israel, in nineteen forty eight, when they became a sovereign state again, when they became a nation again. That was the fig tree, and that's when it bloomed. Right? And so so what did people do? Right? Then you start taking, okay, well, if a generation is forty years, so in nineteen eighty eight, Jesus is coming back. Well, I hope that's not true, because we're still here. Well then, you know, seventy years. Well, that came and passed. Well, a hundred years, so in 2048, get ready. I'm not sure that's true. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. It's a, a, a popular thing, and I, and I get it. I get how you get there. But again, if, if you look at the context as to what Jesus is talking about, right? Even if you go back to, to him talking about reading the signs, right? Right? Um, There'll be wars and rumors of wars and, you know, that it's the beginning of birth pains, that that the world is in turmoil. You know, but he's talking about his second coming. I think what he's saying here is the generation that sees the great tribulation will be the same generation that sees his second coming. There won't be another generation after that. Until his millennial kingdom. I think that's what he's trying to say. This generation, the generation that sees the great tribulation, the generation that goes through that, will be the generation that sees his second coming and will experience that. And when you look at the context, in my opinion, I feel that that's what fits the best. Well, in verse 35, he continues. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. He's talking about the end of the world, right? Right? He's making war with the Antichrist. He's putting the Antichrist and the false prophet in the lake of fire. Right? He's battling their armies from Basra through the Kidron Valley up to the Valley of Megiddo, the Battle of Armageddon. Right? Things are coming to an end. But it's almost as if he interjects there and says, "Take heart. Heaven and Earth are going to pass away. My word will never pass away. My words will by no means pass away. Really? Heaven and Earth will pass away? Oh, yes. Read first, uh, sorry, read second, Peter, three, 10 and 11. Right? But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? You know, I had a, I had a teacher in Bible college that, that always liked to say that, you know, I absolutely believe in global warning because it's the bible's clear it's all going to burn one day it's all going to dissolve right there'll be a new heaven and a new earth there'll be a new jerusalem revelation 20 and 21 but there is one thing that will never pass away there is one thing that will endure and that is god's word his word the word of god Right? And you think about it today, right? Like, how could you? At this point, how could you erase God's word? It's everywhere, right? Amazon took it off their, their top-selling book list because it's just always the top-selling book, always. So it's just a given, right? Digitally, people have memorized it. I met this guy in New York City once that had the entire Bible memorized from cover to cover. Didn't believe a word of it, but had it memorized, He said, if you drive a nail through that book, I'll tell you every word it hits on the way through. But didn't believe a word of it. But it doesn't change the fact that his word will abide forever. It is written on our hearts, it says. If we're believers, his word is written on our hearts. Listen, that means that you and I can always turn to God's word. We can always rely on his word. We can always trust his word. But it also means that we can always obey his word. Because it will endure forever. His word. His word is the final word of arbitration. It defines what truth is. It defines what we should believe. And it defines how we should act and what we should be doing. This book, what it says. You know, we, we put out these, these featured books every month for your considered reading, but I gotta tell you, if you're not in this book, those books don't matter. Get in this one first. Those books are just supplemental. Those books are just if you have the time, but this book is the book we need to be in because this is the book that will last forever. These are the words that will stand. So I gotta, if you're not in this book, I have to encourage you this morning, get in it. Spend time in his word. Let him speak to you. Let him minister to you. Well, we have to hurry up. The Third thing that we wanna consider this morning is not just the prophecies about his second coming, not just, um, sorry, what was the second one? The parable <laughs> about his coming. The third one is the problem with his coming. As as I've already kind of mentioned, you know, there was, there's, there's some different thoughts here as to what Jesus is talking about. And in verse 36, he says, but on that day and in that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So it's interesting here that if, if we're still talking about Jesus's second coming, right, which clearly verses 27 through 35 have been clearly describing the second coming of Jesus, right? When he comes in glory, right? When, when, when the heavens are being lit up, right? When the sun is being darkened, the moon is gone, the, the stars are falling. But then he says, but of, but of that day and hour, no one knows. You know, in verse 42, he says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Verse 44, therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming, and an hour you do not expect. If we were to jump over to Matthew 25, verse 13, he says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So there's a sense in which he jumps into this section where no one knows. Not the angels, not anybody. Only the Father knows when the Lord is coming. So, is he talking about the second coming of Christ? Or is he talking about the rapture of the church? And this is the debate. And, and it didn't seem to matter who I read or who I listened to or, or, or where I got into this. One person would say it's the rapture. The next person would say it's the second coming. And the next prayer, that's that's the second coming. This person would say it's the rapture. And I got to tell you, I was a little perplexed by this. And I'm not trying to scare you because here's the thing. Whether it's the church being raptured or whether it's the second coming of Jesus after the tribulation, it doesn't change the point that he's trying to make. It doesn't change the truth of the fact that we need to be ready and we need to be waiting for his coming whether it's us waiting for the rapture or whether it's the tribulation saints waiting for a second coming. Be ready. Be watchful. But as we look into this, in context, what Jesus has been talking about is the second coming, right? And this could still be referring to that. But, um, there's, there's this question that kind of comes up, right? What about those who are going through the Great Tribulation, right? And they see the abomination of desolation, right? They see the Antichrist go into the temple, right? Because the Bible is clear that when that happens, at the three and a half year mark, right? Jesus' second coming is three and a half years away or 42 months away or 1260 days, right? So if you can, count, if you can figure out the day that the Antichrist commits the abomination of desolation you can figure out the day that Jesus comes back and lands on the Mount of Olives and it splits in two so there's and that's kind of why I say the problem with his coming I think there's kind of a a problem here not not that it's not solvable I mean it could just be as simple as the, the Lord has veiled or masked that day to those going through the tribulation so I think it still could be his second coming but I also think it could be talking about the rapture of the church. You see, in the Greek, there's an interesting conjunction that's taking place here. In the Greek, there's the, this Greek conjunction. It's called the peri-day uh, in, in, in Greek. Peri-day, it's most often translated but concerning. So if you were to read like 1 Corinthians, right, Paul is, is going through in like every chapter heading, you get this but concerning, but concerning, but concerning. Right so he says oh perry day but concerning this and he jumps to a different topic. Oh but concerning this and he jumps to a different topic. So it could be that what Jesus is doing here is he uses the peri day conjunction to say but concerning this that is separate from that. Right? So he could be saying I was talking about my second coming but concerning the rapture of the church perhaps no one knows the day or the hour. I think both fit. But it could be that Jesus is introducing something new. Namely, the rapture of the church. And I think this, it becomes applicable for us, regardless of whether it's the second coming or the rapture. For us in the room, what are we waiting for? The rapture, right? So for us, what we take from this is that we need to be watchful and be ready. We need to be waiting for the Lord to come get us, Right? Which brings us to the fourth thing, which is the parable of his coming. In verses 37 through 39, the parable of his coming. He now gives us this parable. He says, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And did not know until the flood came and took them all away so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Right, so there's this sense of this this urgency. We don't know when it's going to happen. And so I think if you're going through the Great Tribulation, you kind of have an idea as to when it might happen. You can kind of set your calendar to it. Right, but when Noah was building that ark, he didn't know, and nobody else knew. until just one day, the floodwaters came. Right, so Noah and his family had to be ready. Right? They had to be watchful. And so, too, we have to be ready and we have to be watchful because we don't know. We don't know when he's coming. So I think Jesus here is drawing a parable between the day of Noah, the days of Noah, and his, his coming. You know, and, and again, I think the parable fits both ways. And so I want to give you both Because on the one hand, yes, in Genesis chapter 6, when God saved Noah and his family, that Noah escaped, right? That they were saved from this tribulation period, right? Namely, the flood. Right, this preacher of righteousness. Noah preached for 120 years. 120 years he preached righteousness before the floodwaters came as he was building the ark. And he was ultimately delivered. But what's also interesting is that Noah wasn't delivered from the flood. He was delivered through it. right? They went through the flood. They just got to go through it in the ark where they were safe. So again, I think both fit. Whether we're talking about the second coming or the rapture, both seem to fit. We can kind of glean one way or the other. And I think this is important and perhaps significant because... When we read this, we need to be focused on the rapture of the church. You know, but when the rapture takes place, when the church is removed and people get saved, right? Those 144,000 Jews that are going around preaching, right? And as people get saved in the great tribulation, they're going to need the same comfort that we need right now. And so the same passage can minister and apply to them as well. And I love that's how sometimes God's word can work. It, it applies to us just like it applied to the disciples when Jesus said it, because they needed to be watchful and ready. Right? Because we need to live in this sense that Jesus could come at any moment. And so, fifthly, not only do we have this parable about Noah, but we have the promise concerning his coming. This promise given to us in verses 40 and 40 through 42, where he says, Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, the other left. He says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Now, what does that sound like? I mean, to me, it sounds like the rapture of the church, does it not? I mean, that's how we picture it, right? We're standing there and then poof, someone's gone, right? Right, the rapture happens and poof, a huge portion of the population is just up and disappear. They're gone, right? They're meeting Jesus in the clouds. But I gotta tell you, once again, scholars are divided on this point. Not everybody agrees, Whether these verses are describing the second coming of Jesus or whether it's describing the rapture of the church. And again, I, I can understand. I get the division. I can understand both sides. I can understand how one group says, oh, this is definitely the second second coming. Because contextually, what Jesus has been talking about from um, verse 27 on has been his second coming. So it stands to reason that in context, he's continuing that thought. But I can also see how it fits and seems to apply to the rapture of the church as well. Because remember, when Jesus comes back during his second coming, he establishes his throne where he's going to rule with a rod of iron. And those who are not written in the book of life will be taken to judgment. And those who are will be taken into the millennial kingdom with Christ. So there is a sense where one is taken and one is not. But again, and I don't mean to geek out on this stuff, but if you go back to the Greek, I find some interesting things. It's interesting, at least to me, that in in the Greek, the word for taken, back in the previous section, talking about Noah, right? Because when when Noah came in the flood, right? It says that some were taken to judgment. And this word here about the man standing there and one was taken, the woman standing there at the mill, one was taken, It's a different Greek word. It's a different Greek word. The the word referring to those taken in judgment, talking about Noah and those that weren't in the ark, right? It's it's the word. uh, uh, Excuse me. It's the Greek word um, "erio," and it means to be carried off. It means to be removed. But this word in verses forty-one and forty-two. I'm sorry, verses uh, forty and forty-one. Is, is the Greek word para lumbano, which is, is a compound word, right? Para, lambano. Para means to come alongside. It's a Greek preposition that means to come alongside and lambano means to be received. So someone is coming alongside and receiving. Now, I don't want to read too much into this, but what does that sound like? It sounds like, I don't know, Someone's coming alongside us and receiving us unto himself. Paralumbano, it means to be joined with or to be received or to be accepted. And so it could be that the church, right, is being accepted, is being joined together with Christ, right? That he's coming alongside us and receiving us. However, it could still be that someone is being joined together and taken or received unto judgment as well. So again, I feel like I have to teach both sides of this because I feel like the text um, points in both of these directions. And so I can't, I know I'm kind of laboring this point, but how it applies to you and me and how it applies to the tribulation saints are the same. We need to be ready and we need to be watchful because there's going to be a moment when we're taken. Or a moment when we're not taken. If we're not ready. Right? If, you know, not, you know, spoiler alert, a little preview, but, you know, in chapter 25, it talks about about the virgins being ready. Right? And that half of them weren't. Right? They didn't have their oil and they weren't ready for the bridegroom to come. And we don't want to be like the unprepared virgins. We want to be ready. We want to be prepared for when Jesus comes for us. So either way, however you choose to interpret these, these verses, the point, I think, is still the same. Whether we're waiting for the rapture or whether we're waiting for his second coming, we need to be waiting. We need to be ready. We need to be watchful. Well, let's come to the sixth and the final thing we want to look at. We'll close with this. The sixth thing is the preparation for his coming. The preparation for his coming. We need to be prepared. And that's kind of been the crux that he's kind of bringing us to, is to be prepared. He's telling his disciples and those listening and reading, be prepared. Be ready. Be watchful. And this preparation involves two things. Two two things. The first is being prepared. Ready in verses 43 and 44. It says, But now, but know this if the master of the house had known that hour, I'm sorry, had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming, and an hour you do not expect. It's a simple point, but it's a powerful one. We need to be ready. Once again, whether it's the rapture or the second coming, right, right now, we are awaiting the rapture of the church. We are waiting for him to come get us. We need to be ready. There needs to be this sense of anticipation, this sense of eagerness for our Lord. And for those tribulation saints that get saved during the tribulation, they need to be ready. They need to be watchful for Jesus is gonna come back. He's going to step foot on the Mount of Olives and those that aren't called by his name, I'm going to get taken in judgment, right? When Jesus separates the goats, right? And the sheep. 2 Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Right? Paul says in, in 1 Thessalonians 5.2, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Right? We won't be expecting it. We won't be you know, going back to, to the parable with Noah, right? It says that people were, were eating and drinking. They were marrying and being given in marriage, right? In other words, people are going about their day like they always have been, right? We wake up in the morning and we go through our morning routine. Step one, I got to get my morning coffee. Otherwise, nothing else is happening today. Um, you know what I mean? We have this routine. We have this stuff that we do. And, and there's a sense we, we kind of lose that anticipation, that eagerness That the Lord is coming. You know, that word Maranatha that we like to say, right? Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. You know, it was a Syriac expression that means our Lord comes. That's what it means, right? Maranatha, our Lord comes. And it was used as a greeting in the early church. In other words, the early church, they didn't say hello. They didn't say goodbye. They said Maranatha. That was their greeting. Whether coming or going, they said Maranatha. And man, I think, you know, if, if we had that same kind of upward look today, looking for our Lord, saying, our Lord comes, Maranatha. I mean, if we greeted each other that same way every time, it would get so ingrained in our heads, the Lord is coming. He's coming back. Maranatha. At any moment, this could be it. And we'd be in his presence, right? Awaiting those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord, right? That's what we want, right? That's what we're waiting for, eager for. Or are we caught up with the busyness of the world and just it's just another day? Are we just eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage? We need to have that awareness of the imminent return of Jesus. The imminent return of our Savior. We need to be ready. We need to be ready. I remember i was in I was in California, the church I was attending behind behind the pastor were these these giant glass panels, and there had this big garden out behind the church, so you could look through the glass at these panels or through these panels at the garden rather that was behind him and that the pastor would stand there and I remember um, it might have even been this passage, I'm not even sure, but he was The pastor was teaching on the second coming of Jesus. He was teaching on the rapture of the church, and he got to this kind of climactic point in his message, and he stretched out his arm. We need to be ready. And those glass panels—I'm watching him shake like this, like just flexing behind him, and the whole room starts to shake. And I'm like, "This is it. It's happening." Breaking stuff up here. Um, It's happening, and just everyone else like, "Ah, "That's just an earthquake." I'm from New Hampshire, man. We don't have earthquakes thought the Lord was coming for us. But that sense of eagerness and anticipation that it could be any moment, that the very floor could start shaking as Jesus comes for his church. Well, lastly, not only do we need to be ready, but we need to be faithful. We need to be faithful. Verses 45 through 51. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But, but if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants to eat and to drink with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware and will cut him in two and appoint his portion with hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is a sense in which not only should we be ready, but we need to be faithful. I love it when it said. we need to be found so doing. You know, and that's the question this morning. What has He entrusted you with? What has He called you to? What has He given you to be a steward of? And are you being faithful with it? Are you being faithful? Right? Because again, I have already mentioned in Matthew 25, we're going to probably look at this next week, right? The Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. That's what we're longing for. That's what we're hoping for, is to be faithful, to be found faithful. Not just found ready, but found faithful. You know, I think of when, you know, that that little glimpse into Jesus' childhood that we have in, in Luke's gospel, right, where they're searching frantically for him. They found him there in the temple, and he was the one teaching them. And his response was, don't you know that I need to be about my father's business? You know, isn't that so true of us? Don't you know that we need to be about our Father's business? We need to be faithful. You know, it's interesting how we always think that we have more time, right? We always think that there's more time. There's never this sense that, like, time is running short. We always feel like we have more time than we actually have. And I think the Lord this morning is telling us that we we don't have as much time as we think that the time is drawing short. And certainly as I look out in the world we live in, I wonder, Lord, how much longer can you tolerate? How much longer? And I'm I'm thankful and I praise the Lord for, for his patience with us because the longer he waits and the longer he tarries, the more people can be ushered into his kingdom, right? And that is the mercy and the grace of the God that we serve is that he is waiting because he wants people to be saved. He doesn't want people to go through the tribulation. That's not what he wants, but it's what has to happen. And we need to be faithful. So I ask you this morning, what can we be doing for Jesus? How can we be serving him? How can we be faithful to him? Don't don't wait till tomorrow. Because here's what's happened: If you wait until tomorrow, tomorrow will turn into next week. And next week will turn into next month. And next month will turn into next year. And next year... Who knows? Right? Because that's what we do. Ah, I can deal with that tomorrow. Anybody else a procrastinator? Or is it it just me? Am I the only one? Right? Like that. (laughs) We can't. When it comes to serving the Lord, we can't wait till tomorrow because tomorrow isn't promised. Because the the truth of our nature and our flesh is that we, we always have an excuse. Right? We, have a, we always have a reason why we can wait till tomorrow. We always have a reason why we can wait until next week or next month or next year. Lord, I will serve you, but, but let me finish school first. Then, Lord, I'll serve you, but at least let me get married first. Let me kick off my career. Let me get my business on my way first. Then. Then I'll serve you. Now, the whole point that Jesus is saying is don't wait. You don't know. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't realize. And I got to tell you, when he comes for me, I want to be so doing. I want to be found ready, and I want to be found faithful. Serving him, doing what he's called me to do. I always admired, you know, Pastor Chuck Smith, You know, because he always said that when the Lord came for him, he wanted to be behind the pulpit preaching his word. There was no retirement plan for him. He was just, I'm going to serve until the Lord tells me I can't anymore. And for him, in his mind, that was until the Lord takes me home or the Lord greets me in the clouds. You know, and I hope that that's our prayer, and I hope that's our desire, that no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, we're looking for ways to serve him we're looking for ways to be obedient, to be faithful and to be ready. And so Lord, we thank you. We praise you this morning, God, for your word. God, we thank you for this reminder and this promise that you are coming. God, I thank you that we have your promises. We have your your prophecies, Lord, that your your word is replete, Lord, with promises of your coming. And Lord, we are eager and we are Lord, in a lot of ways, we are ready. Lord, we are ready to see you face to face, to see you in your glory. But God, we also know that while there is still today, while there is still breath in our lungs, Lord, while we are here, that there are things that we can be doing for you. There are things that we can be doing to further your kingdom, Lord. So would you show us what those things are? Lord, would you reveal to us what your calling is for our lives? Lord, would you give us discernment and boldness, Lord, and faith, Lord, to to walk in the things you've called us to and to say today, Lord, today I will serve you. Today I will minister to you. Today is yours, Lord, and if you give me tomorrow, then I'll serve you tomorrow too, but today. Lord, give us that sense of urgency and expectedness of your coming, Lord. We thank you. We love you. And we praise you this morning, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.